In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. On Mount Sinai, God said to Moses, Tell the people, if you keep your promises, you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. As modern Christians, we understand ourselves as heir to that agreement. We claim to be a people set apart. In baptism, we make vows to live in certain ways. Some of us have added to those promises by making marriage or ordination vows. To the extent that we are true to any of these promises, we are that priestly kingdom. This means against evil and corruption, we stand strong. When we feel the urge to do what we know is wrong, we resist it. Or when we have dropped the ball, we admit our fault and pay the price. We give evidence of our faith both by what we say and how we live. We maintain the belief that some part of Christ abides within the souls of ordinary people, including those we might be tempted to dismiss as wrong-minded or unimportant. We remain alert for evidence of light in the darkest places, and when we see it, we pay it homage. We also see, as unlikely as this may seem to some, evidence of Christ within ourselves, wherein we also pay him homage. It means we press our shoulder to the wheel to make life fair for everyone. And yes, that is a big wheel, where we have many shoulders and we are resolute. It means that we're sympathetic. We know that there is nothing easy about human life at any age and that events can bruise and even crush a soul. We recognize that just doing all that it takes to manage from day to day, to get the kids up and out to school with their homework done and their vaccinations up to date, to change the oil and rotate the tires on schedule, to pay the bills and taxes, stop by the nursing home on the way home from work, to make a little time for romance, to do all this ought to earn everyone a medal. We appreciate this. So as we stroll the sidewalk, people passing to and fro, exchanging pleasantries, we silently salute them. In other words, we respect the dignity of being human because that's what we have promised. If we show forth in our lives what we have said with our lips in church, we do all of this and more. And on our better days, that is a pretty accurate description of us. And the world is better for it. Now the bad news. Even as a priestly kingdom, we are not going to cure this planet of its ills. In truth, we cannot even quite fix ourselves. Our world is cracked in some ways that even God Almighty cannot fix without wiping the slate and starting over 
And according to the Bible, the rainbow is the sign that he won't do that. Instead, he holds it together with bailing wire and duct tape. It's like the cathedral air conditioner. You fix one thing, another breaks. That ongoing work and progress is the story of the Bible. The flood, the exodus, the law and prophets, the kingdom of David and the temple of Solomon. Scripture presents these as a series of efforts by God to make things more right than not on the planet Earth sometimes becoming frustrated in the process. Jesus seems to have understood himself as God's last best effort in that line. In the Gospels, he shows us what it means to respect the dignity of being human. And where that dignity had been lost, he gave it back. And where it was broken, he fixed it. Jesus had compassion on the crowds, he said, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then saying, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, he summoned his 12 closest followers and gave them power to cure the sick, to cast out demons and even raise the dead. And when people see this, he told them, you tell them that the kingdom of God has come near. Those instructions are theologically important. They disclose the true character of God. So consider the philosophical alternatives. Jesus might have taught the crowds to ease their pain through spiritual detachment, but he didn't. Jesus might have told the sick that they deserve their pain, that their suffering was karma, but he didn't. He might have used their pain to stir them up and start a revolution, but he didn't. He might have thrown up his hands and walked away and retired to chop his wood and tend his garden, as Voltaire's Candide would do, abandoning belief in the overarching goodness of creation. But he did not. Instead, he would demonstrate what Karl Barth calls the omnipotence of mercy. Their cure is the finger of God on the afflicted. Not sickness, but its relief is evidence of God. So the sick were cured and the dead were raised. And as such marvelous events took place, the kingdom of God drew near because Jesus and his followers had evil on the run in Palestine. Likewise, according to our means, we can make this a better world through the practice of religion on a level that all can appreciate and understand, the kind of religion that builds hospitals, inspires soldiers, reforms societies, and improves neighborhoods. Remarkably, we are now hearing that doing such things is even good for those who do them that religion, when kept faithfully, is medicine. I read that the other day in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. A Harvard study found that strong church involvement substantially lowers mortality rates from heart disease and cancer. You can Google that if you don't believe me. 
This is all to say that the practical effects of faith in life are crucial. Faith should make us stronger and better people. And through us, it should make the world a happier and better place. And all of this adds up to half the truth the church is here to tell you. We call this the horizontal axis of the gospel. Now I'd like to talk about the other half, which is harder to see and understand. These are aspects of our faith that are less obvious for their practical effects. They won't cure cancer or lower the crime rate. They are also less historical. They look beyond the facts of what Jesus said or did on any given day into the mystery of who he was and what he did in total. We can call this the vertical axis of the gospel. Both axes are important. Along both, the word is good. On neither is it simple. For example, one of the great vertical tenets of our faith is the mystery of Christ's triumph through the cross. Historically, the cross meant death for him, well, vertically, the same cross means life for us. That is not a simple statement. Rather, it is paradox. Paradox is when the truth of something lurks within its opposite, death and life, life and death. This cathedral building is a monument to paradox. And that brings us to the mystery of divine forgiveness in this morning's reading from the Gospel. In Luke, Jesus puts the mystery of forgiveness on display, accepting the sensual devotion of a woman who is known by all to be a sinner. He compares God's forgiving sins to a banker's forgiving debts. So what do we owe God that is like owing our bank money? Well, promises for one thing. Promises are a kind of IOU. We owe God on all those promises we've made along the way in church. The Jews had made many promises to God. Among Jesus' contemporaries, the Pharisees were working strenuously to keep them, making the world, as they believed, a better place. Now, to their dismay, here was Jesus saying to a woman, Your sins are forgiven. She loved him for it. But who was he to say that? A murmur went through the room. Only God can forgive a sinner. For Luke, that was very much the point. By showing Jesus doing things that only God can do, forgiving sins and quieting storms are two examples, the gospel writers tell us that he is God. John will say that straight out. The earlier writers weave it through their stories. This claim was blasphemy to many of the faithful. They also feared that this doctrine of divine forgiveness was morally destructive. Forgiveness seemed equivalent to license. It would undermine the promises that are meant to set the church apart and make the world more livable. People often challenge St. Paul on this point. In Galatians, he responds to that challenge rhetorically. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. 
At the heart of Christian faith, we find this riddle. My father often used to say that the love of God is absolutely free, costing not less than everything. I think he was quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer. St. Paul himself embodied that. Paul was adamant that we are saved by faith, not works, while himself working day and night in service of the gospel. It is a good bet that the woman who anointed Jesus' feet did likewise, and that Luke's first readers knew this. Again, a paradox. Righteousness and mercy are opposites. In Christ, we find each present in the other. Righteousness is merciful and vice versa. Grace, we call this. I am thrilled that Marilyn Robinson is coming to Trinity Cathedral. In Gilead, she shows us grace by analogy to love. When our children were little, Julie and I learned what it was to love and fret about them. Their occasional mistakes, missteps, and misdeeds were worrisome, aggravating, and distressing, but they did not and could not separate them from our love. Bad or good, we love them. In Christ, we learn that this love in us is godlike. In Gilead, an old preacher said, Love is holy because it is like grace. The worthiness of his object is never really what matters. It is love like this that makes us good and strong. That is the paradox of divine forgiveness. Marilyn Robinson's old preacher justifies this claim. He says, I might seem to be comparing something great and holy with a minor and ordinary thing. That is, love of God with mortal love but I just don't see them as separate things at all. If we can be divinely fed with a morsel, the Eucharist, and divinely blessed with a touch, then the terrible pleasure we can find in a particular face can certainly instruct us in the nature of the very grandest love. Thus, Scripture points to Jesus as the person on whom the fate of this universe has turned. In the Bible, his ministry flashes like lightning across the evening sky. And in that flash, we glimpse, in all their brilliance, the true meaning of our lives.